0: Hi, and welcome to the Mental Trainer Podcast or Mind Coaching Podcast if you're an international listener. You can find more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Search for Mind Coaching Podcast or Mental Trainer Podcast if you're a Norwegian listener. I'm your host, Frank Nielsen, a Norwegian success mindset coach who alongside this podcast help business owners and sports people develop the mental skills that need to excel in stressful situations, achieve consistent success, and attain peak performance. Since I started making podcasts one year ago, I have the honor of interviewing some incredible people. In this episode, I compiled some of the best techniques and information from Professor Jordan Peterson. I've talked to him three times, former FBI leading hostage hostage negotiator, Chris Voss, and shark attack survivor, and an incredibly inspiring person. He's a former Navy clearance diver in the Australian Elite Defense Forces, and his name is Paul DeGelder. You've probably seen him on Shark Week on Discovery Channel. For you who do not know Jordan Peterson, he's a Canadian clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, who has published more than 100 scientific papers, transforming the modern understanding of personality, He was nominated for prestigious Levinson Teaching Prize and is regarded by his current University of Toronto students as one of the three truly life-changing teachers. His online popularity is is also impressive. His YouTube channel has over 12 12 million views. Chris Voss, a 24-year veteran of the FBI. Chris Voss is one of the preeminent practitioners and professors of negotiating skills in the world. Now, over to Chris Wass. He's a 24 veteran of the FBI. Chris Wass is one of the preeminent practitioners and professors of the negotiating skills in the world. As the FBI's former leading international hostage negotiator, he has been face-to-face with a number of criminals, including bank robbers and terrorists. He's also the founder and principal of the Black Swan Group, a consulting firm that provides training and advice for Fortune 500 companies through complex negotiations. Boss has taught for many business schools, including the University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business, Georgetown University, McDonough School of Business, Harvard University, MIT Sloan School of Management, and Northern Western University College School of Management, among others. <laughs> he published the book, Never Split the Difference, and that is how I found him. And to the last, an, an extremely inspiring p- person, Paul DeGelder. He was a Navy clearance diver, and uh, while he was swimming... Uh, he was attacked by a shark and uh, the shark bit off one of his uh, arms and one of his legs and uh, I think it's after six months he was back as a Navy instructor and what's truly inspiring about Paul is he says that uh, there are no excuses for not doing a bench press or uh, doing a squat if you're missing a leg or an arm so Enjoy this episode with 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 these three incredible persons, and uh, hope you can tackle any obstacle after this episode. Thank you for listening.
1: My family has a history of severe depression, and that complicates things. It complicates even analysis of my own temperament because that depression, which looks like it might be an immunological condition, we've been trying to sort it out for a very long period of time, looks like it might be an immunological condition. Okay, but that. Yeah, like, yes, and so I've been trying to sort that out with my daughter mostly because she has a variety of immunological disorders that, that are very complex. So it, it complicates my own temperamental analysis because that the immunological problems seem to produce psychological side effects. I guess that would be the right way to think about it. So it isn't exactly obvious. But I'm also very, very industrious. I want to work all the time
0: do you think uh, the, that that is actually helping you away from the depression that you're also occupied and focused on something
1: it's certainly the case that if i if i do slip into a period of depression that my work routines are are provide the structure that buffers against it absolutely mm. and i mean what i've learned over the years is that when that happens which seems rather random and i think that's part of the immunological element i i I have to stick to my work because I can maintain my daily routines. That way things don't get worse either. Mm. I mean, you know, if you have a reasonably complicated life or if you have a life at all, you can't let your daily routines fall apart because mm. then everything gets worse. So, and if you're in a period of time where you're overwhelmed with negative emotions, your root, your routine is one of the things that really stabilizes you.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, Uh, I believe that uh, where your focus is going, that is where you're getting the results. So if you're letting the depression and the faults of depression taking control, the focus is going just one way, and that's into depression. So do you think that is the reason that we need this, uh, if you're having or or are predisposed to depression? Do you think that is the reason that we need to... Keep going, as usual, and not going into bed and sleeping for hours and days. Yes,
1: well, well, you know, one of the things that you do do if you're trying to treat people with depression is to help them structure their days. It's actually one of the most, if you have a family member that's depressed, one of the most useful things you can do is each night sit down with them and plan the next day in, in a, at a micro level, like uh. hour by hour, and say... You're not gonna feel like doing any of this tomorrow. You're gonna to think it's stupid and pointless and that you're useless and that there's no way you can do it. Ignore all that and do it stupidly. Do it badly. But stick to it. Stick mm. to it. And if you if you if if you fall off the schedule, then get back on it. Do it day after day. And that'll often well, that will certainly at least keep the depression from tumbling down too far and can mm. often provide the sort of kickstart that can help a person recover. And it's nice to do that the evening before because then the person gets to go to sleep surrounded by some sense of stability and purpose, which is often absent when someone becomes seriously depressed. You know, And the person might say, maybe you schedule in, uh, well, at 10 o'clock, you can read for an hour. And the person will say, I can't read at all anymore. And you say, well, if you can't read for an hour, read for 2 minutes and if you can't read a complex book read a book for kids you know find find a level at which you can start picking up the pieces again and putting mm. things together
0: and get the and get the feeling of accomplishment again
1: yes exactly well and that also gets the positive emotion systems working because what happens in depression is that the system that governs extroversion the positive emotion systems shuts off okay and the system that governs neuroticism the negative emotion systems crank up and so not only do you get more anxious and sad and more sad and more frustrated and and more disappointed and all of that but you also lose the ability to experience pleasure those aren't the same thing because they're like there's a separate system for negative emotion
0: and positive emotion is depression a uh, kind of a state
1: uh... well it's 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 like a It's like a trap that you can fall into. So imagine a lot of conditions that we describe as mental illnesses are actually, they're more like, they're more like traps that you can wander into. So, well, so imagine this, imagine that you're, you start to feel badly about yourself and your energy declines. So you're starting to get depressed. Well, and that means that you're a little more irritable with people. And so they respond a little more negatively to you. And you watch, you see that, and that makes you feel even worse about yourself. And so that makes you a little more irritable. And then you start Mm. withdrawing from social contact and you become more isolated. Then you have more time to brood. Then your energy levels fall. Mm. Then you don't do quite as well at work. And you attract a negative comment that knocks down your self-esteem. So you see, these things start... It's a a, spiral. That's right. It's a causal loop. And the same thing happens with a lot of pathological endpoints that people find themselves in like with alcoholism Mm. a real tipping point in the process by which people become alcoholic is that moment they discover that having a drink can cure a hangover
0: the magic pill
1: yes well and then what's happened is that the cure and the disease are the same thing and you spiral very rapidly and then Mm. all your friends are drinkers and then everywhere you go for your social life revolves around alcohol. And so that then to cut back on your drinking means that you have to leave your friends and all of your social life behind. Mm. And so these are traps. They're, they're spirals and circles, vicious circles, mm. and each piece of it reinforces the other.
0: But I'm curious about one thing, uh, because if I uh, understand this correctly, when you're when you're seeing that you're becoming depressed, you see that your thoughts are becoming becoming darker, and we see that uh, people are becoming more negative to your uh, to your expressions. Yeah, is it then possible to change by your state by, for example, going for uh, exercise or? Uh, changing your state by jumping and making all the noises you can or is is it possible to change this, the, the state by changing your physiology when you sure. see that you are getting depressed and getting dark thoughts
1: sure well a lot of the a lot of the things that you can do to to push back on depression are actually pretty directly physical mm. so for example the first thing i do with my clients who are depressed is try to regulate their sleep again because mm. Depri- depression is in part a disorder of circadian rhythms. It's a pain disorder and a disorder of circadian rhythm. Okay, so dep- the, the negative emotion that's associated with depression is very much like pain. And in fact, antidepressants are effective medications for long-term chronic pain, which your viewers might or your listeners might be interested in if they have pain conditions. Hmm. One of the best long-term management strategies is to use an antidepressant. Okay. So, Yeah, it is really worth knowing, you know, so if you have someone who's in chronic pain, man, it's like, if they haven't tried antidepressants, then that's a really useful thing to attempt. Um, And they're not addictive, you know, opiates can be very addictive, Mm. and sedating as well. And antidepressants are also not sedating. The first thing you want to do is look at sleep. Now, if you're waking up too much at night Mm. and worrying, the first thing to do is go to bed later. Now, okay no one later? Can figure that out. Yeah, well, because people think, oh, my sleep is disrupted, I need to go to bed earlier and uh, catch up. Uh, but all that means is that they have a they spend a longer time going to sleep, tossing and turning and worrying. And then because they're sleeping too much, they're much more likely to wake up while they sleep ah, true. and worry. Understand. So one of the things you want to do is so for example, maybe you're accustomed to going to bed at ten and getting up at, at eight, and you're waking up two or three times during the night go to bed at midnight, see what happens. If that doesn't work, go to bed at one. <laughs> like eventually you'll, you'll, you'll shorten your sleep cycle enough so that you won't wake up. And that's better because you get a better night's sleep that way. The other thing you should do is like, if your sleep schedule is erratic, and this is often the case for young people, especially students who don't have a fixed schedule, if you're depressed is pick a time in the morning to wake up and get up at that time every day. Now it. You know, it doesn't have to be at seven o'clock in the morning. It could be 11 o'clock in the morning, but it needs to be stable because the depression can sometimes be a consequence of erratic sleeping and eating habits, Mm. but it certainly exacerbates them. And then make sure you eat breakfast and not carbohydrate heavy breakfast, but a protein and fat heavy breakfast and Mm. eat a lot. And it doesn't matter if you're hungry, Mm. it's irrelevant because if you are depressed Or anxious, your emergency preparedness circuitry is already on high alert. And so if you fast all night, which you do when you're sleeping, and then you stress yourself in the morning before you've had a meal, you'll dysregulate your stress response systems and you can't get them back under control until you sleep again.
0: So does that mean that um, uh, amygdala is more active when you are depressed?
1: That's That's a good way of thinking about it, yes, is that and, but it's more than the amygdala. It's a whole array of, of deep brain structures. okay but but all of the systems that prepare you for emergency action are on alert when you're depressed, at least at, especially in the initial stages of depression. I mean you can get exhausted at some point and that's a whole different story. But mm. yes, you're in emergency preparation mode. And so you need to eat breakfast and a big breakfast Hmm. and anxious people, too. You'll find if you're anxious, first thing to do if you find that you're chronically anxious or if you're anxious during the day is when you notice you're anxious or irritable, eat something. People often do this anyways. They think about it as comfort food. But Hmm. really what's happening is that their blood sugar is low. And so you should eat something, but it should be protein or Fat, not mm. not a, not an easy carbohydrate because that'll just dysregulate your blood sugar in half an hour or so. Mm. But what you and you need to get people around you to watch you. So if you're irritable and anxious, eat something and then get the people around you to tell you if you're better in ten or fifteen minutes. Mm. You might be able to feel it, but they'll notice for sure.
0: Mm. Uh, is that because when we're getting uh, lower blood sugar, the cortisol is getting higher? Well, and then you're becoming more anxious.
1: Or? Yes, well those things spiral when your cortisol levels go up you produce insulin because cortisol is an activating hormone and so the insulin is produced so that you can break down sugar and produce energy but if you're overstressed they'll overproduce insulin it'll take all the sugar out of your blood and then and then you're in real trouble then then you're irritable as hell and that's partly because you know if you're hungry Hmm. which is one indication is that your blood sugar is low. You need to go kill something so you can eat it.
0: <laughs> True. <You> know,
1: yeah. <laughs> True. And hopefully, it's you know you're not taking that out on your wife, <laughs> but you probably will. Mm. You know, like another thing I would recommend is never have an important discussion with someone before they eat.
0: Mm. Ah, so for sure.
1: You have really important things to discuss with your family members or business members and mm. business people, anything like that is right. like feed them something first. Mm. Here's a funny statistic, and I don't remember the precise numbers, but I, I'll get it close. This is for all the criminals out there who are listening to the podcast.
0: <laughs>
1: if you're going to go before a judge and ask for parole. You're twice as likely to get it after lunch as before lunch.
0: Yeah. I read the same article.
1: Yes, well, yeah. it's an amazing It <laughs>
0: <Yeah. laughs> is.
1: Whether or not you get parole... Whether or not someone gets parole depends on
0: whether they talk to a hungry judge. It's so true. It's scary, it's scary. <laughs> for, for <Yeah>. criminals.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it, it's scary to understand how those basic physiological processes have such a huge impact mm. on us.
0: Uh, I talked to Professor Russell Foster from Oxford here earlier about uh, his uh, professor in circadian rhythms. Uh-huh. Uh And uh, he talked about uh, the internal clock and how uh, it uh, how important it is to have the same uh, sleep schedule because yes. if we if it's irregular, uh, uh-huh. then we're getting a problem with uh, the internal clock starting to regulate itself all the time.
1: Absolutely. And if you're if you're prone to see, if you have weaker circadian rhythms, that might be one of the things that makes you prone to depression. Uh-huh. So, for example seasonal affective disorder Mm. you know well that's a circadian rhythm disorder Mm. it's like jet lag what ends up happening if you have seasonal affective disorder is in some sense that you're awake when you should be asleep
2: Mm.
1: and your brain does a lot of negative information processing when you're asleep Mm. well you don't want to be awake for that no not at all and you can tell because you wake up at three in the morning and worry about things like mad Mm. Yeah, well, you oh, should yeah. be asleep for that.
0: <laughs> for sure. <laughs> you want to be asleep.
1: And most of the things that we face in life aren't a fact. They're a set of facts that can be infinitely decomposed. Mm. And so, because of that, you can view that set of facts in a very large number of ways. So then, and that can be determined in part by your mood. So imagine your mood is fluctuating. And so you have this promotion that's ambiguous and when you're feeling good you think it's a great idea <laughs> when you're feeling bad you think it's not so good yeah so you see there's an interaction there between positive and negative emotional states mm. and then there's then there's the field of facts that the opportunity presents and you're trying to sort you're trying to observe that field of facts to pick out what's most particularly relevant. Very, very complicated problem. And m- most of the things that we see in our life are, are complicated sets of facts. Like when you view another person, I mean, a person is a whole bucket of snakes. You never know. <laughs> you never know which way they're going to go.
0: That's true. <laughs> so,
1: you know, so if you think logically and scientifically, you say a thing is a thing. And it's not another thing. And it's certainly not an opposite thing. But when you're dealing in the world, like, for example, with social situations or other people, it's like a thing is a thing and a bunch of other things, and it's opposite all at the same time. And that makes it very difficult to sort things out and navigate through them.
0: Does it mean that uh, if we are going to make some uh, important decisions, we should be in a neutral feeling?
1: You should probably be in a in a in a you should probably consider the important situation assuming a number of different different emotional states. Okay. You know, the problem with being really positive is it makes you impulsive. All you'll see are good things.
0: Mm.
1: And when all you see are good things, then you act to get them as fast as possible. Mm. Alcohol tends to do that to people, especially if they have a positive response to it. You know, everything is good. Cocaine does that to people. Mania does that to people. You know, and so you'll hear psychologists who are not very well informed insist upon the utility of happiness. It's like positive emotion has all sorts of downsides.
0: Oh, please elaborate.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, it makes you impulsive. And, and like if you're really possessed by positive emotion and all the negative emotion disappears, you get manic. And manic people are incredibly impulsive. They'll spend all their money because all they see is a huge field of opportunities just waiting for them. And positive emotion can get you in lots of trouble. That's why you're always telling your kids if you have kids to settle down. Quit running around and having so much fun. (laughs) You know, because they're impulsive and and crazy. I mean, it's really fun and, and exciting, but it's very, very disruptive. It's like a party. Positive emotion is like a party that gets out of hand. So, so you know, you want to be careful that when you're, when you're making a complex decision that you're not in an impulsive and overly enthusiastic state of mind. And mm. part of the way you do that is by talking to other people about it too, because they're going to bring their own situational biases to bear on the problem. And mm. that can be enlightening, like they're focusing on different things. Mm. And they're going to bring more things into the foreground that you're not considering. And push other things into the background that you think are important.
0: I know there is coming a question about the self-help industry because the self-help industry is talking about uh, happiness a lot. What what is most important for you? Well, the,
1: well they, the the problem is is that the idea about what you should aim for mm. is is not formulated in a sophisticated way by people who describe happiness. Mm. Because what you're really looking for is something more like productive peace. Value
0: was the word I was looking for, uh, Jordan.
1: Yeah. Well, productive peace is better. Okay. I mean, first of all, happiness is exhausting. It's tiring. But but what
0: what is the reason that people are always searching for happiness?
1: Well, because they don't really understand that they're not articulating what they want very well. First of all, people don't want to be happy. They want to be not miserable. (laughs) True. And, and that's, that's really an important distinction, because people are more hurt by hurtful things than they're helped by helpful things. They're, we're more sensitive to, de- to pain and destruction, mm. and and for obvious reasons. We can really be hurt. And so the first thing people want to do, and this is partly what they mean when I want to be happy. They mean, I don't want to be overly anxious and in emotional pain. Mm. I don't want to be overwhelmed with shame and guilt and, and self-recrimination. So, really, what they want is for negative emotion to be controlled. And then if they could have some happiness on top of that, you know, like the meringue on a lemon, on a on a lemon pie, Mm. then that would be that would exactly be that. It would be a decoration on the top. Mm. It'd be the cherry and the whipped cream. And good, good. Some happiness as a spice for life, Mm. wonderful. But really, what you want in a family is something more like productive peace. You want to negotiate an arrangement that works for for you and for your partner, for you, your partner and your family, and then the surrounding community, now, next week, next month, next year, and into the future. And you can imagine that as a, as a tiered castle. Hmm. And that's, that's Jerusalem. That's the holy city. That's, that's the place where everything is properly balanced. And that's a place of peace and productivity. And you can live in there. That's the promised land. That's the land of milk and honey, right? Mm. And you can live in there peacefully and productively. But to think of that as happiness is is insufficiently sophisticated. Mm. It's, it's like a map that only has one word on it.
0: <laughs>
1: How are we going to get anywhere with that?
0: Mm, it's like, that's true.
1: you've got to differentiate it.
0: So always searching for happiness is the wrong way to search for, search for the right thing that I understand.
1: Yes, well, that, well, that's a really important point hmm. because happiness isn't isn't a goal; it's a side effect.
0: Hmm. Oh, very true.
1: So, so what I one of the things I would say is that if you want to be, if you want your life to be of higher quality, search for responsibility, not happiness.
0: What do you mean Just about that?
1: Responsibility gives your life meaning. You know, find a partner, treat them well, have some kids. Get a career, mm. fix up the world. That'll, that'll. Those are responsibilities, and they're important. Pick something important, mm. reduce suffering. And now and then, if you do that, you'll be happy. But it'll be, you'll have something better than happiness. That's God. Peace of mind is better than happiness. Uh, a satiated conscience, a, a, a conscience that isn't plaguing you at three in the morning.
0: Mm. But isn't uh, often uh, happiness also uh, uh, together with accomplishment? But when we feel accomplishment, well,
1: yeah. Well, but the, I would say that's 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 part of its respo- relationship with responsibility.
0: Yeah, yeah, all very true.
1: Because accomplishment is is responsibility successfully shouldered. Hmm. So uh, you can point to something and say, "Look, I I did that. I helped make the world a better place. I helped reduce." unnecessary suffering, mm. I put some structures in place that really matter to people. And and that justifies your miserable existence.
0: And then there comes the question of motivation. Uh, I presume that the different personality types have different motivation.
1: Yes. well, Yeah, they do. And, and so there's there's a field of responsibility that comes along with each of the temperaments, I would say. So a creative person has to expand the domain of knowledge. And that includes aesthetic knowledge. So because they're often artistic. And a conscientious person has a duty to to uphold. And an agreeable person has relationships to 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 make. Hmm. And a disagreeable person has has um, interests to pursue and, and 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 challenges to to overcome and dominant positions to be established. Hmm. And a neurotic person needs to work on making the world secure and safe. And an extroverted person needs to entertain and 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 act in the social world. And so those are all different sets of motivations and they all have their responsibilities. Like an extroverted person can be a great host and can can and can bring people together and connect them. Now an introverted people are more contemplative, as I said, and, and and they're 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 more focused, I think, on their relationship with nature. Mm, yeah, for sure. So, so each of the temperaments has their own domain of motivation and responsibility. I would say,
0: and but then it's also very important to understand different temperament, because I, yes, I, well, I think a lot of people are searching for motivation but can't find it. Yes,
1: well, they're often unwilling to admit to what motivations are as well. Okay, you know, and I think I think this is often troublesome, particularly troublesome in the modern world for women. Hmm. Because women are more interested in intimate relationships and their maintenance than men, hmm. it's frustrating for women.
0: But, <laughs> that I can understand. <laughs> but,
1: right, and it's not, and it's something very difficult to to bring into harmony with the demands of career. For example, because careers tend to be very competitive,
0: and that's the reason they're getting stressed a lot and get anxious
1: that and the fact that it's very it's you know what women especially when they're young women have complicated lives they're more mm. complicated than men's lives mm. because they they have a shorter biological timeline because they have to have children quite early mm. and to pack all of that into the first 40 years say is very very complicated well mm. or, or the first 30 years which would be even more optimal that's even more complicated mm. because it only it gives you about 13 years of maturity to say after 17 to really get yourself established and sorted out and ready to have kids and on the career track it's mm. it's it's uh it's it's very stressful and no wonder it's it's very large burden of complexity to 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 sort out and manage
0: what if you're having uh two parents that are both uh, introverted and you get an extremely extroverted child for example
1: Right. Well, that, I mean, one of the challenges that parents often have is that, and children, is that the temperament of the child doesn't match the temperament of the adults. Mm. So, like, maybe you have two conservative parents and you're really high in openness. Well, that's going to be rough because the conservative parents want everything to stay in the damn boxes where they belong, (laughs) things not to change much. And the creative kid is just going to be bouncing off the wall.
0: (laughs) So what, so, what and, can the, what can the parents do then, Jordan?
1: Pay attention to the individuality of the child
0: mm.
1: and listen mm. and listen. And again, it's the same thing: is that mm. you you want to. There's almost nothing that's more important than listening to people, and you you can do that with a certain amount of detachment. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them.
0: Mm.
1: It also doesn't mean that there's any necessarily necessary implication for your forward action. But you have to watch and listen and see what that person is like. Mm. And then you have to encourage them along their way. And that might mean that you're taken out of your zone of comfort. It could easily mean that. Mm. You know, if you you have two extroverted parents and you're an introvert, it's going to be very hard for the extroverted parents to figure out that introverted kid. Mm. I mean, they're going to him or herself. He's not going to talk much. He's going to want to spend time alone in his room. It's like, what's up with that kid? <laughs> Introverted parents would have no problem with that. They would just understand it. <laughs> but extroverts, it's just going to drive them crazy. Something's wrong with that kid. All he wants to do is stay in his room. <laughs> and if you if you have, you know, if your child is disagreeable and you're agreeable, well, good luck to you. The child, <laughs> my son is very disagreeable. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, although he's very emotionally stable, so very low in neuroticism, so he's very easy to get along with, unless you want him to do something he doesn't want to do. (laughs) In which case, good luck to you. He was nine months old. It was so interesting watching him. When he was nine months old, he decided he was going to be master of the spoon and that no one else was going to feed him. But then the little rat would just play all the time (laughs) instead of eating. And so... I had a war with him when he was nine months old. When I had to take the spoon back, <laughs> it was unbelievable. Like he would <clears> sit there, I and I knew he was hungry, the little blighter. <laughs> I take food and put it up to his mouth, and he'd go like this. <laughs> you know, just glare at me, and he would clamp his mouth shut. Cause there was no damn way he was going to open his mouth for me. <clears And throat> that was that.
0: So I have the same so, obstacle at home. So yeah, that's reason really, oh, I'm laughing.
1: <clears throat> I mean nine-month-old kids can be so uh, tough it's just not not my, my daughter was very agreeable and she like if she was doing something and you didn't want her to do it all you had to do is look at her and she quit my son it was like that was just the open all <laughs> out war <laughs> so how
0: <clears throat> i have a two and a half year old and he's extremely disagreeable yep. so uh, how do you handle that uh the best way jordan
1: Okay. Well, the first thing the first thing you do is understand that you can always win mm. if you want, because you're way bigger, and you can be way more patient. Now, whether or not you should always win is a different issue, because mm. you have to let the little rat win <laughs> some of the time, or, you, or he gets dis, disheartened. Mm. But I would say the first thing you do is detach yourself mm. so that you're not angry, and then you get your disciplinary strategies in order. Mm. And you, you start out with a minor intervention and, and uh, what would you call, escalate as necessary to mm. produce compliance. Mm.
2: You
1: know, so one of the very, very useful things to do with a, a particularly temperamental two-year-old is to get him to sit on the steps. It's like if he's misbehaving mm. in a way. And I would consider misbehavior the manifestation of any behavior that would be likely to cause him to be socially disruptive in the community. Okay. Okay, because you don't want people to look with disfavor on your children. Hmm. And so if they're behaving in a way that you don't like, but that you know other people wouldn't like, then you need to bring it to a halt because you want other people to welcome your children. It's hmm. really it's the most important thing you can do as a parent. Well, so you might have to get them to sit on the steps. I say, go sit on the steps. And the rule is sit on the steps till you get yourself together as soon as you're ready to control yourself then you can get off the steps come talk to me hmm. and so the child will ha- if they're particularly disagreeable there's no way they'll go sit on the <laughs> steps so then nope. you have to carry them there hmm. because it, it often comes down to a physical intervention especially with the 2 year old it's like no you're sitting there hmm. and then they'll they'll you know, try to run off. You got to bring him back. No, you're sitting there until I say you can get up. Until you behave, and you got to have the you got to have the war. It's a dominance dispute. Mm. When you're trying to train a an assertive puppy, mm. it's exactly the same thing. It's like no, no, you're going to listen. You're going to sit there. Mm. Okay, so then you get that established. You say, "Okay, you sit there until you get yourself together." Mm. Then you watch. A, you watch the kid. Once they learn that, they'll sit there just angry. <laughs> and like full-fledged rage two-year-olds are very possessed by emotion. Hmm. But they'll learn how to bring that under control, and that's a great thing if you can facilitate that in your child because they're learning to control their emotions.
0: Uh, Because one strategy I have used is to change his state of mind. So if he's extremely angry, I would start to dance or do something that he's changed. Oh,
1: yeah, that's good, good too. The play thing is a really good idea.
0: Yeah, so you can also change their state because I've seen that it's easier to change the state done uh, making it sit for a while and but yes but then, it depends
1: uh, depends on like it depends on see I was thinking more maybe your two-year-old has just hit another kid on the head with
0: a truck oh, of course then of course yeah of course yeah,
1: but no with two-year-olds you could and you know the other thing with two-year-olds is you always want to check are they hungry mm. are they tired
0: mm. you
1: know, because off are they too hot are they too cold mm. you know are have they but, and that kind of runs the gamut.
0: Yeah. That
1: that's most of a 2-year-old's problems. Mm. Hungry, tired, hot, cold. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, and uh, getting what they want.
1: The other thing that, that that's really good to do with 2-year-olds and you may already know this is to wrestle with them.
0: Mm. You said that last time.
1: Like, oh yes, they love mm. that. And yeah. that's a really good thing because that you help them explore the nature of their bodies that way.
0: And running after them. They uh, looks like they uh, like the hunting part of it, if you're running after them.
1: Oh, well, you, you know how much kids like to play tag and to play hide and seek and all of that. Yeah, well, they want to know, they want to play hide and seek because they want to know if they're worth finding. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, if you really don't, if you really don't like your child, you just play hide. <laughs> 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 uh. Well, I think the best antidote to fear, all things considered, is to be pursuing in your life something that you really think is worth pursuing, because the best antidote to fear isn't lack of fear. The best antidote to fear is courage, right? And those are different things. Like if, If someone comes to psychotherapy and they have too many fears, you actually don't teach them. Their fear may reduce across time, but it's not because you teach them to be less fearful. What happens is you teach them to be more courageous. And encourage them to be more courageous. And then, as a consequence of that, they become more fearful. And so, what I would say with regards to becoming less fearful is that you need to develop for yourself a vision of what your life could be if you were living it properly, even by your own definition, so that engaging in risky endeavors, the sort of risky endeavors that life requires, Become self-evidently justified by the profundity of your vision for your existence. I mean, we've we've been using. I think I've talked to you a little bit about it, but I developed with my colleagues a program called the Future Authoring Program. I don't remember if the last time we talked, if I did, I set up a code for your listeners. No, you didn't. Oh, I should do that. So, so I, oh, yeah. I, I should do that and and set up a discount yes, code for your listeners. So I'll, I'll set that up today. But the Future Authoring Program is part of a suite of programs called the Self-Authoring Suite. And it's at selfauthoring.com. And what there's, there's programs there that help people write about their past. So helps them write an autobiography, helps them write about their personality faults and virtues, and then helps them outline a three to five year plan for their life. And writing about your past can help you clarify what's happened to you and figure out where you are. And, you know, imagine you're trying to make your way through a strange city, and you're trying to get to your destination. I mean, in order to do that, you need to know where your destination is, but you also need to know where you are at that moment. And if you don't know where you are, then you're lost. And if you're lost, then you're anxious. And so one of the advantages to writing about your past, so the the past authoring program asked you to divide your life into six parts and then to divide each of those parts into important, emotionally significant events, and then to write about the effects, positive and negative, of those emotionally significant events. And it's designed to catch you up. It's it's designed to gather all the parts of you that are sort of spread out too vaguely, and to pull yourself together so that you know where you are. And then the future authoring program is designed to help you figure out where you're going. And that those, the combination of those two things can reduce the amount of uncertainty in your life. And that reduces anxiety. But it's also the case that if you formulate a set of, well, a, of a personal vision, let's say, a, a true personal vision, and you formulate a plan for attaining that, then that also gives your life purpose and meaning. And that also, that gives you courage and fortitude in the face of uncertainty. So you could kind of have your cake and eat it, too. You can figure out where you are and where you're going, and that makes you less anxious. But then by also deciding under what conditions your life would be optimally worth living, that can give you enough courage to go out and confront things that might otherwise stop you in your tracks and make you too anxious and depressed.
0: I have tried the program I really liked it and I recommend everybody to try it besides being a poker podcast producer and a host I also work as a mental trainer yes right I'm uh, from and from my perspective is a lot about what you say okay uh, girls where we're going to go but also about accomplishment i I believe that accomplishment is uh, one of the most important feelings that we have so if you want to overcome fear it's about feeling accomplishment uh, and the same time, expose ourselves in this in the situation. For example, if you're afraid afraid of flying, you need to set some uh, clear goals for yeah. this flight. And uh, for example, if you know that you're going to be scared most of the time, you can say, okay, I can be afraid two times, and the rest are going to be are going to be uh, calm and feel this is going to be a great flight. And in that way, you feel accomplishment for yeah. two times you felt calm.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's a good observation, because one of the things you want to do when you're training yourself to face something that's threatening is to set the threshold for your accomplishment high enough so that you improve, but low enough so that you have a pretty good chance of hitting the goal. Now, and that's a really good way of managing yourself in general. It's like you want to set a goal that pushes you beyond your limits, but that you have a reasonable probability of attaining. And that way, you're, 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 there's justice in that, because it's pushing you forward, and holding you to a standard and there's some mercy in it because there's a good probability that you can succeed in that and that that will that will help you validate your existence in your own eyes and the accomplishment issue like that's an interesting one because it does seem to me that people are built for in some sense they're built for a weight and because our lives are bounded by trap are bounded first by mortality and also also characterized by tragedy, you have to live in a manner that has a certain amount of nobility in order for you to tolerate your own existence without becoming contemptuous of yourself and then sort of spiraling down that depression, anxiety, rabbit hole. And so it's of crucial importance that people develop a vision for their life and, and, and to, to set goals that transform their character and keep moving them upward, The you could say, up the hierarchy of being. It's the right thing for people to do. And so that's, it's very, very practical advice.
0: Yeah, and from my experience, together with self-authoring program, I believe that mental training is extremely important because I believe that uh, when you're yes. writing something, you also have to do it. So, so when you're writing something, yeah, become aware of what you need to do, but also need to do it. And, uh, what, what why do you think this is, uh, Jordan, that, uh, we believe that. From my from my experience now, after doing this for quite a few years now, is that the mental part is like a muscle. We need we need to build this mental part as a muscle. We need to train it, the same as we train its physical body. But why is it that we believe that we do not uh, need to train this mental part, but we need to train this physical part?
1: Well, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, that's a, such a good question. I mean, here's a hypothesis for you. So about. Fifteen years ago, maybe, I started using the future authoring program in my classes. Fifteen years ago. Wow. Wow. Fifteen years ago. Yeah, and that that was when we were first starting to develop it. And and I did that partly because this Maps of Meaning class that I was teaching that's also online, people can can watch it, has to do with – it's based on the proposition that the best way to describe your life is as a story and that you should – you should be living out a story consciously because otherwise you live out one unconsciously and that's not a very good idea because it might be a bad story if you're living it out unconsciously or it's a bunch of fragmentary stories that don't work very well together and so you get in your own way all the time you know or you're a bit part in someone else's drama or something like that but the the bottom line is you're stuck in a story and maybe you could decide what the story was going to be and that you should now now okay so so that was the background and then but more specifically it was all right well you have to write out your future story so i had students start to think so here here's the way it works is you're supposed to first of all put yourself in the proper mindset and the mindset is like a reverie or 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 daydream mindset but it's, but a serious one and so you're contemplating your own existence and then you say to yourself okay well if i was acting like I was someone I was taking care of, which, first of all, that starts to be difficult right off the bat because people don't necessarily take care of themselves like there's someone they're caring for. It's actually quite infrequent that they do that. So you, because they're very aware of their own faults and their, and their lack of virtues and, their, and the horrible you know, catastrophe of their life. And so they're embarrassed about themselves and, and ashamed and they don't take care of themselves properly. So the first thing is you have to cut yourself a break. And say, I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to act as if I'm someone worth taking care of, and I'm going to see if I could, if I could put myself in in the in the state of mind that would enable that. And then the next issue is, okay, let's imagine that you were taking care of yourself and that you could have what you that you could have what would be good for you if you were careful about specifying it. The next issue is, okay, what would that be? It's like, and then think, well, okay, well, what are the important things to consider? Well, I ask people to consider the quality of their intimate relationship, their family interactions, their choice of career, their productive and high-quality activities outside of work, their care for their mental and physical health, and the avoidance of pitfalls like alcohol and drug uh, abuse. And so we could say, all right, so now you're going to imagine what your life would be if you got to have what you would need to have on all of those dimensions and that that was balanced properly for you as far as you're concerned. What would that look like? Well, then we get people to write about that a little bit. Then we get people to make a plan to bring that into being. Okay, so but back to your original question. Why don't people do that? Well, when when I formulated the program, that really started to bother me I thought well Jesus I'm, I'm dealing with these students that have been in university in school for 15 years then they're high-end students most of them and no one had ever sat them down ever once in their entire life and said okay um, spend three hours justifying your existence you know like just like you read write in a history essay it's like okay here who are you and what's good about you and what's not so good what could use some improvement and Where do you want to be and who do you want to be in three years? And I don't mean your career. I mean, what sort of person would it be good for you to be in three years that would make that would justify your life to yourself? No one ever asked them that. And that just I still can't believe that. But then I learned that the public school system in North America was based on the Prussian military model from the late 1800s. And the Prussian military model was predicated on the idea that the proper function of a public education system was to produce obedient soldiers slash workers. Well, that's not the same as producing autonomous people who set their own destinies. And so that that idea of producing obedient workers is built right into the foundation of the education system, right from kindergarten onward. And that's why you see, see if you look at a school, I presume they're the same in Scandinavia, but You think about the way a school is arranged. It's in a factory-like building. And the students all sit in rows of desks. And there's a clear leader at the front. And there are bells that time everything. I mean, it's basically a factory. And what the children are trained to do is to become workers who are governed by the clock. Who take their direction from a central authority. And, like, I'm not... A particular egalitarian person. And I understand that there needs to be clear lines of authority in schools, but the schools aren't predicated on the idea that their central function is to produce autonomous, self directed individuals. And so, and I think it's because we haven't shaken ourselves out of the what, latter third of the industrial revolution model. That's still what our our school systems are predicated on. And, and it's not the late, it's not the end of the 1800s anymore. It's not even close to that. Or, so, So that needs to be updated and people need to be taught and encouraged to think about themselves and their place in the world and to set a target for their existence, for the development of their character and strive towards that. And all that does when people try to do it is make them better. It makes them less fearful. It makes them less depressed. It gives them more hope. It makes them more reliable for their family. It makes them better citizens. It's it makes them less nihilistic about life. Um, it gives them something to get out of bed for in the morning. Like all of it is good, and so, well, hopefully we'll wake up and figure out that that's what needs to be done. That's that that would be good.
0: Yeah, and I, the reason I wanted to, to ask that question, Jordan, is that. The reason I am talking, I don't know if I've explained this before, the reason I'm talking to you now is that back in 2011, I experienced panic attacks for a long period of time, uh, for a four months straight, I think, 24-7, and uh, I, c- I couldn't find any help anywhere, so uh, one uh, one evening, I decided either at jumping out of the window, I was exhausted. Or I'm going to find a solution. So uh, gladly I find a solution and I went to the computer and uh, I think I ordered 30 books from Amazon. I have it about mindfulness and anxiety. And uh, that led me into this, uh, into this endeavor with uh, mental training. And I think I'm a pretty focused person. So uh, when I'm going into something, I'm going into it. So uh, for the last now six years, i right. giving all, all of my time into the mental aspect and that is also the reason of this podcast to share these techniques and from my experience yeah. now that uh, if there's something i fear i go into it by the with the thinking of accomplishment of course and that is a perfect uh, opportunity for mental training so bef- uh, before i was afraid of flying So I did what I said earlier about setting these clear goals. And I know that uh, if Mm -hmm. I felt this fear, I said to myself, this is a perfect opportunity for mental training. I stole this from Travis Mason, by the way. And he's an ultra ultra runner. And for each time I train the mind to experience this fear in a positive way, I do not experience fear anymore. So what I teach my clients is that, every opportunity uh, that you feel that uh, your life is going um, going not your way. And if you encounter something, you can think about it. It's a perfect opportunity for mental training if you you believe for yourself that it's important to build this as a muscle. So uh, one year ago, I started to work with a CEO and he said that uh, Mm -hmm. he was a little bit ashamed of working about the mental aspect because he believed that this was some sickness and, uh, now after one year, he's talking about it everywhere because now he has finally understand that working with the mental aspect is nothing to be ashamed about. It's just helping you uh, progress even more. So. Do you believe that uh, this this uh, standard from the late 1800s that do uh, make us feel ashamed of doing something about the mental aspect, or because the mental aspect mm-hmm. is extremely important? From studies shows that almost 40 percent of all everything we do every day is automatic, fr- from uh, what I read, and that means that there is uh, our habits and our response patterns. Is that correct, Jordan?
1: Yeah yeah well, okay so so let let me respond to let me respond to a couple of things there okay so the first thing you said which i really liked was that you can you can take a different tack on your fear so let's say that you have a goal and then an obstacle arises and that makes you afraid now you can regard that as an enemy and shrink away from it or you can think oh look I know that what I'm pursuing is important. And now this fear-related obstacle has arisen. That gives me an opportunity to strengthen my character. I mean, it's it's a pain and all that because it makes you nervous. But the nervousness is an indication that there's something about you that's lacking in relationship to your pursuit of the goal. And that's a perfect opportunity for self-development. So, for example, let's say that you decide that you're going to have a broader social life. And then you realize that one of the things that, or maybe a, a more effective career. And one of the things that that necessitates is learning to speak in public. And then you realize that you're terrified of doing that. And you could say, oh my God, I'm terrified of doing that. That's a terrible thing. I better drop my plan. I better go hide in my room. I better go not go out and talk to people. Or you could say, hey, isn't that interesting? It turns out that I happen to be afraid of public speaking. Well, I should do something about that because, Well, maybe you could because people can speak in public and why the hell couldn't you? And so maybe I should go take a course or maybe I should start at least imagining standing in front of 10 people and talking to them. And maybe I should figure out how to learn how to articulate my ideas better. And so it's a massive opportunity for growth. And so one of the things that I think is really useful about the way you formulate it is that you can consider an obstacle that produces fear a great friend because it points out a place that you need development and there will be spin-off benefits from that development like you can't believe so so then what you're doing basically is transforming a threat into a challenge and that actually produces tremendous psychophysiological changes because when you respond to
0: something I love flying now <laughs> mm, well, there you there you go
1: and, yeah. well i know you've also yeah. trained yourself through observation to notice that if you find something that you're afraid of and you decide to take it apart and master it that you can so not only did you get rid of the fear but you got you practiced mastering the process that helped you get rid of the fear okay so that's really useful so it's like oh i discovered something i don't want to do and that i'm shunning it's like great that's an opportunity for further growth that's a really useful thing it's a really useful thing to discover and then you talked about the shame that's associated with the idea of mental development. It's, yeah, it's it's as if we all think that we should be perfect psychologically and spiritually. Even though no one thinks about that physically, it's like people know perfectly well that if that's they true. want to put themselves together physically, they have to start running and go to the gym. And I mean, people are embarrassed about that often, that they're in such terrible shape. But they don't assume that they should just be perfect to begin with. But... Our psychological education is is pretty underdeveloped. That's what I would say about it is Mm, that we're, and it's not, again, it's not something that's taught well in school, even in even the process of, okay, I'm afraid of something. Well, what do you do about it? Well, you think about what you're afraid of, then you break it down into small pieces that are manageable, then you practice managing each of the small pieces, and then you get over your fear. I mean, people aren't taught that, and it's an extraordinarily effective technique. And so I think it's just that our psychological education is not very sophisticated. And that's partly why people have have shame about not being as well put together as they might be, and also don't know exactly what to do about it. The other thing, too, is, is that people have this tendency to assume that they're the only crazy person on the planet. So, you know, you've got your weird set of peculiarities and you don't want to talk about them much because you think, oh, my God, if people knew this about me, God only knows what they would think. And they're out there having their (laughs) happy Facebook lives, you know, where everything is going wonderfully. And I'm laying here suffering miserably with my foolishness. And what people also don't realize is that everybody has problems. And almost everybody has at least one serious problem. But certainly even the people who don't have a serious problem have a small host of, of you know non-trivial problems that they have to deal with. And so realizing that you're that you have a psychological inadequacy is almost exactly the same thing as joining the human race. <laughs> like when you when you start to develop a new skill, it's very difficult because you don't know how to Perceive and you don't know how to move your body and you don't know how to respond emotionally. And so it's very, very demanding. Use a tremendous amount of psychophysiological resources in order to practice a new skill. But then as you get better and better at it, you stop wasting time and energy while you're doing it. And the brain systems that you use to engage in the activity become more and more concentrated. And more and more specialized until basically what happens is that through practice you build a little machine let's say at the back of your head the back of your brain that's specialized for that particular operation and then it's extraordinarily efficient and so then it's easier just to run on automatic but you build those habits the habits are built consciously but they run unconsciously and it's a matter of efficiency essentially like for example by the time you're an expert driver you're doing almost everything implicitly, and that's why you can think about all sorts of things while you're driving, because you've built little automatic machines that take care of almost all of the micro habits. Like You know exactly how hard to push on the brake. You know exactly how much resistance there is in the steering wheel. You know exactly how to look at the road, and that's all the consequence of hundreds of hours of practice and the development of neural circuits that are specialized for that. And partly what you're doing when you're building your character, by the way, is that you're building the microhabits, the microhabit machines into your physical architecture that you would like to, to have running. And you can build new ones. The new ones inhibit the old ones. The old ones don't disappear and they can pop back on you in, in, in periods of stress. But what you do when you set a goal and then start practicing the routines is that you start building new automatic habits that can carry you through your life. And that, that's an extraordinarily useful thing to do. But the reason it happens is a matter of efficiency. You want a dedicated circuit that does things automatically and stupidly in a sense. Because like once you know how to do something, you can do it without thinking. That's almost the definition of knowing how to do something. And the advantage of that is efficiency in circuitry and, 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 and far less use of time and resources. So partly, and this is the other thing that's not taught to people very well, is that a lot of what you're doing in your life is developing your character and you might think of your character as the sum total of your automatic habits. And so you should practice doing things. You should practice being the way you would like to be automatically. And if you practice that enough, then you become that automatically. You just, it, it, it becomes part of your implicit character. And that's an extraordinarily useful thing to know as well.
0: So. Fake it to make it.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. That's exactly right. It's, it's, it's you you have to you have to act out something before you can become it very frequently
0: and that's the reason people think that it's uh, about faking it and uh, what you just said that you have to fake it before it's going to be the real thing
1: yeah it's well it's it's, it's, it's you're not yeah, so well you too. have to be imperfect before you can be perfect and so and, and you're what you're doing when you're faking it in some sense is you're doing the same kind of pretend play that a child does when he's he or she is trying to figure out how to adopt a new role and so it isn't even that you're faking it, it's that you're you're starting to practice who you want to become. And and you're gonna do that badly. And and peop- and that's 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 why you feel like you're an imposter so frequently when you try something new. It's because, well, you are, but that's that shouldn't stop you. The 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 reason it's not faking it is because When you're starting to practice something new, it's actually okay to admit to yourself and others that you don't know what you're doing and that you're just learning. And that's actually okay. And so you say, well, what right do you have to do that? And the answer is, well, I have no right to do it right now except that I'm practicing learning how to do it well. And since everyone has to practice learning how to do things well, then we have to allow people the right to be fools when they first start doing something. We have
0: to allow ourselves the same right. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks
1: Drew. a lot. It's always good to talk to you.
0: You also talk about three different personality types in the book, Chris.
3: Right. You know, there are Norwegians and there are Americans and there are Latin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you never know what they're going to do. Those people are crazy. <laughs> they're they're blind and they're tall and they run around in the ice and the snow <laughs> in a swimming suit. And good Lord, they're crazy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> uh, uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on the three different personality types.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, and this gets back to the, the universal nature of hu- human beings. You know, you hear a lot of psychologists talk about the caveman brain or, you know, some people say, you know, there's a portion of the brain called the amygdala and they call it the amygdala hijack. All right. So we all of us have got some wiring on our brain left over from the caveman days. You know, it's, really, it's where our emotions are housed. It's called the limbic system. And no matter how, what our education level is, no matter what our gender is, no matter what our ethnicity is, you know, we got this same wiring. Everybody's got a limbic system. I was with some psychologists in Hong Kong not that long ago, and they said, the psychologist said, well, you know, I've I've listened to hostage negotiators who say you can't negotiate with terrorists. And I I knew I had them because they know the limbic system. So I said, how many terrorists don't have limbic systems? (laughs) And the room went dead silent. (laughs) I said, you know, that's my way in. So what's in the limbic system? Why am I bothering talking about this? In caveman days, caveman's walking down the uh, you know the path in the jungle, wherever the caveman is, or in the mountains of Norway, wherever he's at. And he sees a threat. And he act, reacts one of three ways. Do I fight it? Do I run from it? Do I make friends with it? Fight, flight, or make friends? Um, those are the three responses. And every caveman is wired to do that. These are the three negotiator types, the assertive, you know, they see a challenge, want to take it on head on. The analyst also known as the avoider, but far more analytical, sees the challenge and says, let me figure this out before I make another move. You know, what are all the different possibilities here? Do I hide behind a tree? Do I take another path? Do I set a trap? Do I back up? You know, the analyst thinks through all the possibilities. The accommodator, the friend-oriented people sees a threat. You know, is this an ally? Can I can I make friends with it? You know, can I make it part of my team? You know, do I is it, do I make make it a pet? You know, what is it? Do I mate with it? What is it? You know, how do I how do I make friends with this? Those are the three basic responses. You know, that's carried through to all of us through the from the caveman days. And so, in any given negotiation, you know, what are you going to want to do? Are you gonna to want to attack the problem? Are you gonna to wanna to analyze the problem? Are you gonna to wanna to try to make friends with the problem? Hmm. And then and, and that we've seen that worldwide because uh, there's actually a psychological test that you can give that shakes it out in about 10, 15, 20 minutes. We give people this test. From China to Germany to Colombia, South America.
0: Hmm.
3: I've seen the world break pretty much up in a those three types fairly evenly wherever we go you know ar- around the world Middle East to Africa to Asia and the and if, and I, I I know you keep trying to get a word in it as way well. last point is you know if this idea that my my company has is true then that means the two out of three people you encounter are going to be different than you are
0: and I believe that one uh, what is the common trait for different personality types? Uh,
3: um, not so much a common trait, but you know, we then experimented with uh, of, of our nine negotiation skills, and some of them are just normal conversation; they're, they're not complicated. But what do all three types like the most? You know, how do they want to be dealt with? The biggest thing is is you know we're taught together information by asking questions. And one of our types does not like to be asked questions and hates even more answering questions. Okay. You know, the analytical type, if you ask an analyst a question, they're going to want to think through all the possible answers before they say anything and what are the implications of the answers. Hmm. So you ask an analytical type a question, they're happy to answer in
0: a week. <laughs> <laughs> about in an interview then <laughs> <laughs>
3: you know so um, we found out that one of our skills which we call a label where instead of asking an analyst a question you might say to an analyst because you want to know why they're saying what they're saying and you might uh, a normal question is why are you saying that what made you say that what makes you think that analyst is going to back up right away. So, what you do is you use a label and you say, Seems like you've given us a lot of thought. And then the analyst is has, and so they're gonna want to tell you all about it. And it's a great way to trigger them giving all this information. That same comment to the assertive, the attacking person, you can say to the assertive, seems like you've given us a lot of thought. And they're gonna tell you. And so this label skill. Happens to be the most universally liked skill by all three types.
0: Can I give uh, one, more, uh, one uh, more example of labeling? Because I, that I found re- really interesting. Sure. Uh, do you have uh, one more example? All
3: right. So um, if someone is uh, uh, arguing with you, you can say, it seems like there's something about this you just don't like. And they'll open up and especially if they're arguing with you. A lot of people are happy to argue, but they're reluctant to say why. Hmm. Because there might be weakness in their reasoning. They might know that they're just um, they don't have a lot of reasons for it. You know, uh, a a classic example is if somebody says something isn't fair, you know, (laughs) A current president of the United States talks about stuff being unfair in every other tweet he puts out. (laughs) Well, what the person is really telling us when they say something's unfair is they don't like it, but they can't think of good reasons to argue with you. Because if they had good reasons, they'd come out and say, they'd say, this is the price is out of line with the market. They'd say, um, everything you've done in prior to now is in contradiction to this. You know, they give you reasons. Fair, which we refer to as the F word, is really a cover up for lack of reasoning. And so then um, you want to respond to a label, since they're not going to have any reasons, they're all going to be emotional. And a current president of the United States, if nothing else, is emotional. You To get him to talk about it, talk it through, instead of fighting with you and arguing with you, you'd say, seems like you have a reason for saying that. Or it seems like there's nothing, there's something about this that you just don't like. Hmm. Uh, or it seems like you think this is unfair. You know, you're using a label to draw people out to get some recognition. So you don't sound like you're arguing. You sound like you really want to know. And, and in, in reality, you do. Because how do you negotiate unless you really know where the other side's coming from? Hmm. And so that's another, that's another example
0: of using a label um, when people are arguing. Uh but you also talk about uh, calibrated questions. Calibrated questions,
3: yeah, and we, you know, we chose that term because everything you say, particularly questions, are going to have an emotional impact on the other side. Everything you say, uh, and so why not recognize that and then calibrate it as a result? An example of a, a calibrated question to be used rarely but occasionally used is why. Hmm. The word why always makes people defensive, hmm. always. So if you want, if you really want to know why you shouldn't ask why, because it's going to make somebody defensive. You know, why did, why did you, why did you do that is an accusation. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I was talking to a group of people the other day, this guy had a, actually a great shirt on. It was, this, it, it was a really good looking shirt. And I said, I said, so why did you wear that shirt today? And I could tell that he felt like there was something wrong with his shirt. He <laughs> pulled with it. And so then I said, now, what if I would have said to you, what made you pick that shirt today? And I said, that felt differently, didn't it? And, and immediately he was like, yeah, you know, um, he was re- he was ready to answer. And, and at that point in time, he said, yeah, well, actually, my wife gave me the shirt. She was sitting right next to him. <laughs> And he said, I never wear it. I wore it today just to prove to her that I appreciated this shirt. <laughs> and she started to laugh and, you know, she enjoyed it too. But so the why uh, has a, an impact uh, as a word, you know, calibrate that. What has an impact as a word? What seems very non-threatening? So you can change your why's to what made you do that. You know, uh, that takes a responsibility for an action. It makes people people react. And here's another one that, uh, that actually blows people away, though. If I ask you a question where the answer is yes, would you like to make more money?
1: Hmm.
3: You know, Would you like to have a better life? The typical salesperson's question, um, would, would you like to do this? Yes, actually, uh, is commitment. And commitment creates anxiety. And every time you try to ask somebody the word, to say yes to you, they become worried about what they're letting themselves in for. I actually had uh, uh let's go back to the shirt thing uh i you know I had a shirt that I was thinking about getting rid of, and so I wore it one day because I wanted my girlfriend to react to it, and you know I had it when I went to pick her up. she said, wow, I really like that shirt so I, I said to myself, Oh okay, well, I guess I'm not throwing this out. she likes it <laughs> so you know late later that night i I said to her again, I said, So you like this shirt, right And she literally says to me. If I say yes, what am I letting myself in for? That's what people say to themselves every time you try to get them to say yes. What happens when someone's saying that to themselves? They get distracted. They Mm. stop listening. They start thinking about all sorts of other things. It makes them anxious. Mm. Yes is a question that creates. It's another question that creates certain emotions. So then uh, the, the thing that we have a great time with, that we gain the upper hand all the time, well, uh, if yes creates anxiety, what happens when somebody says no? They feel protected. And when people feel protected, they relax. And when they relax, they listen. So you want to know then? Yeah, all the time, all day long. For example, nobody in my company will ever call you on the phone and say, have you got a few minutes to talk? Because what's the answer I'm looking for is yes. Yes creates anxiety. How long is a few minutes? What do you want to talk about? If I agree to talk, um, does that mean I have to talk about what you want to talk about? These are all the anxiety-producing questions people ask themselves. So instead, every single time we call somebody on the phone, we say, is now a bad time to talk?
0: Well, no, no, it's never a bad time to talk. (laughs) Wow. Never saw so, that coming, grace,
3: Yeah, I and mean, it's just you know, it's a, it's a recognition. I, as a hostage negotiator, have had a chance to test drive emotional reactions on all kinds of communications in every culture on the planet, and we pulled it all together, and then we're helping people uh, move their lives forward with what we learned.
0: Wow! Because in every sales book, it's the same. Does this, is this a good time to talk? or do you have the time yeah. i mean uh, right uh, right and yeah yeah uh, I, I never knew that one
3: yeah it's it's crazy right you know it, uh, it's yeah.
0: uh, extremely it, interesting it, yeah uh, before you start a negotiation chris i presume there uh, is hostages involved i presume your uh, outcome is uh, to get the hostages free uh, but in a business negotiation do you set yourself clear goals before you start a negotiation and uh, do you change this goal Uh, under the negotiation?
3: Yeah. Great question because um, what that boils down to is what does goal setting do to you? Goal setting uh, both elevates your performance and handicaps you. How does it elevate you? It only elevates you if you set a high goal because now you're going to work harder and not everybody sets a high goal. You know, the, the, a great, um, concept that my brothers and sisters at Harvard came up with is called BATNA, best alternative to negotiated agreement. You know, what happens if we don't make a deal? Mm. This is intellectually a very sound concept, emotionally a bad concept. Because many people in Batna, when they understand their best alternative, that becomes their goal. And they underperform because they they give themselves a very low goal to goal to accomplish at which point in time they're willing to quit. Mm. And that's the handicap. There's actually a secondary handicap. You should set a high goal, but then what happens if something better comes along? You're so focused on your goal, you miss it. Uh, never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. So how do, we, how do we blend these ideas? You set a high goal and then say, I can do better than this. One of my goals is, by the end of this conversation, I need to, I need to learn three new things. Information that they didn't tell me about or that I could never found or even more importantly What they think of that information If I think I got leverage, what do they think of my leverage? If if they think my leverage is useless Is that is does it then become useless? Absolutely Leverage is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder Hmm. So I gotta I gotta find out relevant facts And even more important, I got to find out how they feel About those relevant facts. And then I can make a deal.
0: One thing I'm extremely curious about, Chris, is that uh, when you go into a negotiation, let's say you want to buy your dream house. Right. And you do not want to lose that dream house. You want to buy it. Right. And then you're emotionally invested. And you have a fear of losing it. Right. Then I presume you're a bad negotiator.
3: (laughs) Well, maybe you've taken yourself hostage. Um, and then also, you know, everything that you think makes you weak might actually be a reason to make a deal. So you found your dream house. How does this help me make a better deal? Let the other side get to know you as a person. And I got a friend of mine here in Los Angeles, Los Angeles is a very hot real estate market. Very few houses sell for the asking price. Unless there's something seriously wrong with the house, they all sell for more than the asking price. What do I, uh, what's a hostage negotiation technique I could use? Well, I know that if a uh, if the, if the terrorist knows my first name, they're going to deal with me in a different way than if they don't know my name. Okay. I know if a terrorist knows the hostage's first name, they're less likely to harm. In a business deal, it's a lot easier for the other person to turn you down when they don't know anything about you. Hmm. My friend made an offer on a house. He sent a letter to the seller explaining his hopes and dreams for the house. You know, my fiance and I want to buy this house. You know, we hope to have a family here. We hope to to raise a family here. We hope to create our future. We want to create the same memories in this house that you had. We hope you had positive memories here. We want to cherish this place as much as you did. They also sent in a picture of uh, themselves to the seller. The seller made an agreement with them and turned down other higher (laughs) offers because nobody else that made the offer had a face. There were no pictures. Nobody else talked about their hopes and dreams for the house. And it was easy for them to turn the other people down because they didn't know who they were. They were just, it was just a name. It was just a signature on a contract. So, you could you can take your vulnerabilities and make them into advantages if you know how to just reframe it emotionally for the other side.
0: Wow! So it's all about playing on the emotional side. But let's say I was in a negotiation with your kind of personality type, Chris, because I think you're an assertive type.
3: I'm assertive.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm assertive. Uh, uh, I'm like I'm, uh, I like to get agree, unagreeable. Uh, what's what's that's the personality type? Uh,
3: Uh, A friendship oriented is an accommodator.
0: Yeah. Uh, So what is my best strategy to uh, to do a best deal with you, Chris? Your personality type. All
3: right. So at the end of the day, you know, there's elements from every personality that make a great negotiator. You know, there is no one type that's best. So you've got one of the easier things to start off with. You know, I've seen some data that indicates that you're six times more likely to make a deal with somebody that you like. The the relationship oriented personality type, natural born, make deals because people like dealing with them. Uh, so your 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 desire to have a great relationship with me is actually going to give you a very significant advantage in making deals because I'm going to like dealing with you, and I'm going to want to keep dealing with you because I like it. You know, the, there's a phrase that we say: the last impression is the lasting impression. You're always going to try to end our conversation positively. Hmm. You're not going to be happy unless you do. That actually gives you a great tactical advantage. So your likability in dealing with an assertive is a big advantage. What you The vulnerability aspect of that is that in order to maintain the relationship, if you're desperate to, you'll let yourself get pushed pretty far. Mm. That's the uh, problem. And, and And so then just understanding at the end of the day for you, the second range of thought is, if you get pushed too far, you're going to make a deal that's actually bad for both of us. Because if it's bad for you, on some level, it's going to be bad for me long term. Hmm. And so and, and some people uh, have trouble seeing the second phase of that. But you in order to protect me, you actually have to not let yourself get pushed around. Because then it, I, I talked earlier about the future. What's the future position? You can't stay in a relationship with me if you let me push you around all the time. Hmm. And as soon as you realize the future looks bad for both of us by being too agreeable, you'll be more careful because now you're protecting the future relationship as well as the present relationship.
0: Hmm. Not true. Uh, but it can be a bit different kind of personality types and different kind of settings.
3: You, yeah, you, you have a basic default type, okay. but some people... excuse me, some people are also adaptable. They learn to be adaptable. Mm. And we often, we see a lot of times um, that gets back to the openness trait. Mm. And I've seen people who are very analytical in business negotiations and very accommodating in personal negotiations. And they'll flip almost immediately. Mm. I'm not sure which one they started out with, but they, they came to learn that they needed to add to their skills, mm. and based on a context I mentioned earlier, contextual intelligence. Mm. Right, so the context here, I need to be friendlier. Context here, I need to be more analytical. Mm. Context here, I need to be more assertive. Um, it's almost like that, you know. There's, a, are you an introvert or an extrovert? And some people say, well, there's a thing called an omnivert, which is dependent upon the circumstances which one I am. Mm. And I think that gets back to the openness trait. In your ability to adapt.
0: Hmm. Uh, what is your most powerful technique to build rapport as fast as possible, uh, Chris?
3: Um, to start out with some sort of a label right off the bat that demonstrates understanding. And that'll be, you know, if somebody expresses themselves to me, I'll say, you know, it seems like, and then I'll, uh, you know, designate whatever they said that was important in the middle of it. Hmm. I'll recognize what was important. You know, it seems to me like it's really important for you to have a long-term relationship. Mm. You know, I'll I'll make an an observation that indicates that I actually <laughs> that I actually listened to what they said. Mm. And uh and like universally, once someone is actually listened to, they'll talk some more. Every, it's a it's a human-nature desire to be understood. Mm. Even, you know, they they say there's um, high context and low context cultures. And as I recall, the the high context are, quote, the Asians, because they say very little. So you have to understand context. Well, they're still human beings and they still want to be understood. And what they are is they're really testing you. They're going to reveal very little until you begin to listen, Hmm. because they're not going to bother if you're not going to listen. And it's, it's not confined to the Asian culture. It's actually a personality trait hmm. that has manifested itself in more or less ways in different cultures, depending upon what circumstances they face. But they're still human beings. They're high context people. And an analyst is a high context human being. I'm not going to talk if I'm an analyst unless you're listening. And as soon as you start to listening, I'll open up more and more and more. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I've learned along along the way.
0: Uh- what is the similarity principle, uh, Chris, and why it's important?
3: Well, you know, similarity is uh, um, it, it can be easily misunderstood. You know, are we alike, or then uh, how it's misunderstood is, are you like how I want to be? And the, so there's the you know, what's the present, what's the future, and and do I like you, even if we're not alike? So similarity has to do with, you know, whether we share traits in common. It it can be very powerful. It's the the common ground issue. And the two most and overall po- powerful uh, aspects of common ground are usually ethnicity and geography. You know, are we the same ethnicity or do we grow up in the same place? We could be vastly different ethnicity. You could be Chinese, I could be Latin. But if we both grew up in the same town in Norway, hmm. We're going to feel really good around each other Mm. because of our geography similarity. So those two things can be really powerful. And some people rely on them because they find them to be so powerful. It's common ground. It can also be an addiction that limits you. And I don't like to be limited by anything in my negotiations. I pride myself in being able to negotiate well with people that I share no common ground with because actually the most important piece of common ground is that we're both human beings and if I, and that's that sub liking it's subcultural it crosses liking it crosses boundaries it crosses cultures and when i wire into that then i can then i can deal with anybody
0: uh, do you see a negotiation as a game uh, chris uh,
3: i you know i don't uh, not necessarily for me i know some people do you know i, I look at it as collaboration um, a, a great opportunity for us to do great stuff together. You know, I happen to particularly like if you don't see this collaboration, and I can convert you to my way of thinking. <laughs> uh. um, and then maybe, maybe to me, it could it could is it a challenge for me? You know, I love challenge. Mm. I'm not sure that my word is game. For some people, that they'd say, what well, what you're doing is describing a game." You know, they're descri- you're describing competition. You're trying to win. It's got to be a game. That just doesn't happen to be my word, but it might be for some.
0: But let, let's say it's a business uh, negotiation. Uh, and from my from, from my own experience, and the people listening that are going to negotiate me in the future, turn it turn off, <laughs> because right. uh, I can see that uh, uh, I can uh, have the people uh, in my. Um, thinking my way uh all the way to the closing but in the closing part i'm losing them and i'm not sure right. i'm not sure why uh, and, I, and i think it's maybe something to do with agreeableness that we talked about a little bit earlier so do you have any um do you have any techniques or um uh, or uh something that you can share about uh, uh, uh closing
3: yeah, the, um, and that happens a lot. And I think one of the problems is, you know, there's been false agreement along the way. There's been too many yeses. Mm. Uh, there's been too many your rights instead of that's right. And, you know, uh, human beings are probably seduced more by your right than they are by yes.
0: Mm. Because of the ego. Not,
3: uh, the ego, absolutely. You know, we love to be told you're right. We love it. Love it. And it's it's one of the great uh, bizarre natures of human behavior because we love to be told you're right. But that's not the way we use it. We use your right to get people to leave us alone. We use your right to get people to stop talking. That's true. You know, a uh, a husband <laughs> says, "You're right to his wife." All the time. <laughs> probably the masters of your life right? <laughs> for sure you know and, and then they're gonna go back to the tv and watch what they were watching before
0: <laughs>
3: uh, you never help me out you never appreciate me. honey you're right yeah. spot on so <laughs> so and uh, which is amazing Why you know we all use it so much to get to get people to go away and we all fall for it constantly and in a business deal, that's probably what's happened. If you if you get towards the end, uh, and your and you and your if your gut instinct is picking up a problem in closing, you know your gut instinct is your emotional intelligence. It's it, there's probably some good recognition going on there. Intuition is just recognition. You know, so the issue is, you know, how did I get here, or what do I do about it now? You know, at any given point in time, pulling a "That's right" out of the other person is instantly starts to fix things hmm. uh, it it makes the fastest transitions in a positive direction faster than anything. I mean stunning. you'll move uh, uh, that's right from the other side will move you through two to three phases in a negotiation nearly instantly. So if you're off track, the fastest way to getting back on track is to take a timeout. Try to get some that's rights. Mm. The that's rights will then are going to trigger some spontaneous utterances. You know, as a FBI agent, I'd call it a spontaneous confession Mm. in a business deal. It's black swans suddenly start getting rare pieces of information as a black swan. Mm. They suddenly get start getting thrown out on the table after the that's rights. Or if there's an emotional barrier, the other person just lets it go.
1: Mm.
0: You said something in the beginning here uh, we are talking about um uh, and you're talking about uh, the psychologist about uh, about the endocrine system. Uh and you said I had him. Uh do you look for ways to get an um to get an uh oh, what's the word for it? Um uh aha uh-huh.
3: Maybe yeah. an aha uh-huh moment, aha uh-huh moment, and, to
0: uh, and get this—not uh, it's not overtake, but a, 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 a upper hand. It's uh, yeah. search for upper hand upper on the other.
3: Hand? No, I would never want to have this. <laughs> Why would I ever do that?
0: <laughs> but, but is that something that you um, you consciously searching for when you're in a conversation?
3: yeah i think it probably is i mean i i uh one of our the secret to gaining the upper hand in any negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control mm. and i got to admit i i really want to feel like i have the upper hand mm. um i i want to make a deal uh i want you to want to continue to deal with me
0: mm. another, you know, i i i know a man uh chris uh, i hope you have, have your time for this uh, last question. uh you said something about uh, the illusion of control. How, right. how do you give people the illusion of control?
3: Well, um, usually it starts out with deference. You know, uh, when you're deferential to people, they feel in control. Um, and there are a lot of people that are, that are they're not oriented uh, to actually making a deal. They're oriented to control. And so I know that if I make you feel in control, there's a really good chance. I'm going to get the deal I, I want, you know, and, and again, it's it's very much like You know, Don, the, uh, president of the United States Donald Trump is a very control-oriented guy. Hmm. I I read his book a long time ago You know the art of the deal And he even talks in his book about a guy who is extremely deferential uh, And the guy actually flooded him with details. Do you want this? Do you want this because Mr. Trump is a control, control oriented guy was always telling this person what to do. So this guy said, well, the really easy way to get Mr. Trump off my back is to ask him everything, overwhelm him with control, make him feel completely in control. And finally, Trump sent him a letter back saying, stop bothering me with all these details and just do however you think you need to do. Mm-hmm. So what this guy did was, he, you know, he overwhelmed Trump with the feeling of control, which caused, you know, Donald Trump to, to, to let go. Mm. because he felt in in command. And you notice uh, when he was running for president of the United States, I saw a special that said that, uh, you know, Donald Trump likes to sign every check that goes out because he he wants to feel like he's in control. Now, look at who's got influence with him these days. His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, makes him feel in control. Kushner never argues with him publicly. He never calls him out publicly. And Jared Kushner is quite firmly in a great position in the current White House. Look at another guy who doesn't argue with him publicly, who makes him feel like he's in control. Paul Ryan. Uh, A year ago, uh, Donald Trump said very few, uh, almost nothing good about Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House. Paul Ryan stays quiet, doesn't argue with him, is very deferential, extremely deferential. And look at how well they're getting along. I I think Paul Ryan has has given Mr. Trump the illusion of control and consequently is coming out far Paul Ryan ran even though they they didn't get the healthcare thing through the House of Representatives Paul Ryan led the way on that so he's 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 done very effectively by being deferential there's there's great
0: power in deference how do you assign a consultant twist <laughs> <laughs> you know i i take that work yeah I mean, more than half to get hired. Uh, the last question, Chris, uh, can you share three, que- uh, tr- can you share three keys to closing a negotiation in a brilliant manner?
3: Yeah. Uh, the, the first key to closing is at the, at the very end, make the other person feel it's okay to say no. Um, it's, it's an, an autonomy issue, you know, and if people feel the right to know, say no has been taken away. They're more likely to refuse to cooperate. So if you feel like somebody's having some reluctance, say, "Look, you could back out of this at any time. You know, you have a choice here. If it's not good for you, don't do it. If you feel it's the wrong thing, if you feel like you've been coerced, if you feel like you weren't involved here, you know, don't do it. Invite people to say no, and that may be the last thing that they need. They they need to feel like they weren't cornered. They need to feel like it was a voluntary decision." So uh, at a closing, say at, at any point in time, you know, maybe you see a different future here. You know, don't do this if you don't want it. You know, push the deal back across the table to them. Say, here, you know, keep your money. Keep keep the check. Uh, an extremely significant period of time, they're going to say, no, I want this. And that'll be the, what cements them into the deal. Now, if you push... A contract back to the other side and say, don't do this now. And they hold on to it. You actually didn't plant a seed. There was a seed there that you needed to uncover. Because what, you know, yes is nothing without how. The deal is all implementation. You will run into implementation problems and they will be very expensive. So, a great closing skill is again, let people feel that it's okay to back out and they're more likely to comply. Give them a chance to talk, get a, be silent when you can be, and get a that's right out of them. And you put those three things together, and you're going to be able to close really powerfully.
0: Mm. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Chris. Uh, I could for sure talk to you for hours, but uh, I, know I know you're a busy man, and for uh, people are listening, read the book. You're uh, telling a lot about the techniques and uh, and a lot of uh, your experience in uh, Never speak exactly. a Difference. Uh, yeah,
3: and, you know, they can come to our website, too, if they want to learn more about my company.
0: And what is the website address, Chris? It's uh, it's
3: blackswanltd.com. Thank you. I'd, you know, I'd love to be on. It was a
0: pleasure being on with you. Okay. Have a nice day, Chris.
2: So I was I was swimming on my back on the surface in a place called Woolamaloo. Uh, and that's right alongside the Navy base, right in the heart of Sydney City. Um, you can see the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge from where I was. Um, and it's somewhere that we've we've worked and trained thousands of times for decades. And I was only in the water for about five minutes on the surface on my back, and a shark came up from underneath me, a bull shark, and it grabbed me by the right hamstring and the right hand in the same bite. And now my, my greatest fear in the world was sharks. So you can imagine my surprise when I turn around and find a great big shark head attached to me. Um, Generally not what you expect.
0: Nightmare. It didn't
2: hurt. Yeah. Like looking eye to eye with this gigantic gray head with teeth half embedded into your body. Um, and I was terrified, and I didn't know what to do. But then my survival instinct kicked in, and I thought, oh, shit, I've seen I've seen the crocodile hunter. I'll try and jab it in the eyeball. <laughs> but it, had, it actually had my hand in its mouth, so I couldn't use my right hand, and I couldn't reach the eyeball with my left hand. So all I could really do is try and push it off by the nose, but that only pushed the lower jaw deeper into my leg. And so I tried to punch it in the head, but as soon as I, I – Swung back to hit it, the shark started shaking me, and all the strength went out of me because the pain was just incredible. It, when the bull shark um, grabs something, it, its top teeth latch on first, and then the bottom jaw comes in underneath. And as the head swings, the two teeth uh, act as a saw. So as it was shaking me, it was sawing the flesh out of my body, which I'm sure you can imagine is is pretty painful. Um, you know, akin to hitting your shin on the table, on the coffee table. <laughs> Ooh,
0: <laughs> but uh, you
2: know, I, I was in agony. I was drowning at the same time because it took me underwater. And after about eight seconds, I, I'd just given up. And I thought, there's no way that I can get out of this and I'm going to die now. Um, but luckily, a couple of seconds later, it had removed my hamstring. I didn't know this at the time, but it had actually ripped my hamstring out of my leg and taken off my hand as well, and it, and it started to swim away. So I popped to the surface and saw my safety boat with my three teammates in it, and I started swimming back to the boat. Um, but as I took my first stroke with my right hand, I could see that it wasn't there anymore. <laughs> I, my arm ended at the end of my wetsuit. So my medical training kicked in, and I thought, I've got to keep that wound above my heart so I won't bleed out. So I kept my arm up out of the water and started swimming with one hand and one leg because I couldn't even feel my right leg. Um, The guys in the safety boat said that I was actually swimming through a pool of my own blood. um, And... I just thought the shark was going to come back and kill me, but lucky for me,
0: the the guys in the safety boat got to me first and they pulled me out of the water and started first aid uh, and kept me alive. Uh, Do you think you would uh, would have survived without the military training uh, beforehand? Not a chance.
2: No way. The fact that the military had taught me not just medical training, but also how to stay calm in a very... Uh, stressful situation like that, and also I was so highly trained and so fit that my body was used to operating on lower amounts of oxygen in my blood. Um, plus, the adrenaline also kicked in. But mm. I, I really don't think I would have survived if I wasn't a highly trained uh, military operator.
0: Uh, how did you mentally stay calm uh, under this moment? In this moment, Paul. It was, it was about survival
2: in the early moments. Uh, just get the hell out of the water as fast as possible because I'm still alive. I'm not going to give up. So just get to that boat and the guys will take care of the rest. Um, so I just kept swimming. I, I wasn't going very far and I wasn't going very fast, but I just kept swimming. And, you know, I, I was not going to quit until I was dead.
0: Yeah. Do you remember what you were thinking in this moment? Or is that just some... Uh... Get me, out, <laughs> Get me out. Get out of the water. Get out of the water. Uh, Please don't bite me
2: again, because that shit hurts.
0: <laughs> uh, well, what I didn't tell you uh, beforehand, uh, Paul, is that uh, this podcast is a lot about mental strategies. And uh, the reason I wanted to ask that question is, uh, what are you thinking when you see the shark biting off your hand? that I'm curious about?
2: Uh, this is my worst nightmare. Yeah. There was only two things that I was deathly afraid of, and that was sharks and public speaking. <laughs>
0: shark Speaking, actually.
2: Which is funny because now I do public speaking all the time. It's my main job, and I dive with sharks. So, you know, it's testament to the fact that you never know what life has in store for you. But when the shark grabbed me, it was, it was very quick. It was very instantaneous reactions. It's adrenaline. But after that, that's when the mental strength came in. Um, When I got to the back to the safety boat and the guys pulled me out of the water and just out of the sheer relief of being safe and not eaten anymore, I finally got a chance to relax. And my eyes rolled back in my head and I passed out and my buddy, thought that I was going into cardiac arrest. So his training taught him he had to stimulate my heart. So he straddled me and he gave me what we refer to as a series of short, sharp jabs to the chest, uh, stimulate my heart and wake me back up. Okay. And, and it worked, you know. Um, and I woke up and I looked over and my hand was gone, freshly bitten off by a shark. And I look up and Tomo's beating the shit out of me. And I just think, today's a really crappy day. <laughs> wow he woke me up and um i I had to get my priorities in order i didn't know if i was going to survive and so i looked at him and i said tomo can you make sure someone looks after my motorbike (laughs) (laughs) it's it's very strange the things that you think of when you're thinking that you're going to die you know when i was underwater and, I, and the shark was tearing me apart, and I had accepted that I was going to die, I actually had a, a calm come over me. And I wasn't stressed, and I wasn't fighting anymore. And I looked, everything sort of slowed down, and my mind was racing. And I kind of felt that I hadn't lived a wasted life. In those last moments, I had no regrets, you know, I, I'd lived 10 lives since then. You know, I had a, a rap career. I'd opened up for Snoop Doggy Dog as a rapper. I'd, I'd traveled. I'd peace kept with the United Nations. I'd, I'd done so much. And if I was going to die, then I was ready to go. And I think that's one of the most important things that people forget to do is is to really, really live their lives so that when that time comes, where it's your last day, you can look back and not have any regrets, and you can look back and say, I have really lived.
0: One thing I'm extremely curious about, uh, Paul, uh, when you experienced a shark attack and you lost two of your limbs, uh, I presume that uh, your life got uh, turned upside down. Did you want uh, to give up and feel sorry for yourself, or how did that uh happen?
2: not, I, didn't, I never wanted to really give up for an extended period of time. I, I was on a lot of drugs the first week, uh, and I was unconscious for a lot of it as well, so I really wasn't thinking too clearly. Um, but I ended up having to have my, the rest of my leg taken off. And after that surgery, uh, the pain management team couldn't manage my pain. Uh, the drugs weren't working anymore. My legs swole up enormous and I went through 20, 20 hours of agonizing torture where I, all I wanted to do was die mm-hmm. just to stop the pain. You know, This is a, the worst feeling I've ever had in my life and I would never wish this feeling on another human soul to think that your only option to stop the pain is to die. And I rolled from side to side in my hospital bed crying, begging for death. And I even asked my mum to go down the street and find a gun so I could kill myself. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a tough day, man. Um, but fortunately, that, that pain passed. And since then, I, I really I never let myself get too upset by things for too long. Um, a, a good friend of mine gave me some advice and he said, look, don't feel bad about feeling bad. It's okay. Everyone feels bad. Just identify why you are feeling bad. Accept it, either fix it or get rid of it and just move on. Don't let it ruin your, your day, your week or your whole life because it's just not worth it. So I use that a lot. And I, I never really have extended periods where I wanted to give up. Um, there was tough nights, obviously, where I was crying myself to sleep because the pain was so bad or it was just it was just great enough to keep me awake. And I couldn't sleep all night. And I knew that I'd have another long day ahead of me. And sometimes it was just very, very hard to deal with all of that. But I I was determined never to give in. I I was never going to try and end it. I was never going to wallow in my self-pity because just like how I felt when I was about to die, that I'd had no regrets, I was determined to still keep that mentality of not having any regrets, and I, I was still alive. You know, I wasn't going to die. I I could, I could never kill myself. I'm not that sort of person. I, I don't believe in in giving up the the gift that we've been given. And so, what was I going to do? Was I going to wallow in my self pity and get addicted to my pain medications and give up on my career and just have a really shit life, or am I going to take the the tiniest of steps? You know give myself the tiniest of challenges that i can complete time after time after time and build those small challenges and goals and tasks into this big impossible dream of going back to my job and so that's what i decided to do because i wanted to have a good life
0: uh, but you're talking a lot about the regret here and not having the regret uh... And is there a reason that uh, the regret is something important for you?
2: Yeah, well, it's it's not just me. You know, there was a, a nurse, uh, I think about 10 years ago, and she put together an article or a book or something um, talking about, you know, she spent a lot of time with people on their deathbeds, and she put together a book of um, dying people's biggest regrets or biggest wishes of what they wish they'd had they'd done or hadn't done and it it, it was full of people's regrets i wish i'd said sorry to someone i wish i'd been here i wish i'd done that so why wait until that time when you all you can do is wish Mm. you live them now this is the time this is what we have so make it worth it
0: yeah true so, it was uh, actually the book and the nurse that uh, changed uh, your opinion about it.
2: No, I actually found out about her later, but it, it, it solidified my beliefs in what I was doing. Mm. Um, the, I, I, I never even realized that the regrets would come. You know, that was just a, a, a surprise to me mm. when I was underwater, drowning in agony feeling like I'm about to die and then all of a sudden I'm thinking about whether or not I have any regrets. I I didn't expect that to happen. I didn't know that was going to happen. It's just what happened. Hmm. Um, And so now I know what's important to me because you, you, you can never truly know what the most important things in the world are to you until you're nearly dead and you have to You'll, you'll never see them again, or you'll never have them again, or you'll never get to accomplish something again. So that's the beauty of the experience that I've been through, and I look at it as that. I think I think it's a an amazing experience that I've had that very few people will ever get to have to find out what is truly important to you.
0: Mm. What did you find out? Find out. Paul?
2: I found out that happiness is essential. And the best way to get that happiness is not by trying to provide it to yourself, but by providing it to other people. Interesting.
0: Uh, that is very interesting. So how did you realize that it was, that it, it was about other people? Um, it,
2: it came from... Me actually experiencing it uh, because I I spent a lot of time obviously trying to recover, going through my rehabilitation and focusing a lot on me and what I needed to do and what I wanted. And, I you know, I, I ended up going back to surfing and I was very proud of the things that I was achieving um, you know, I, I went back in the ocean trying to surf on one leg three months to the day after the shark attack. Wow. I got back to work after six, I got back to work with the Navy as a diving instructor after six months. Um, but it wasn't until I was asked to go and speak at a, a camp for kids suffering from cancer that I really felt my value because like I said before, you know, the two things I was greatest afraid of, were sharks and public speaking. And people had asked me to speak for that, but I just kept saying no. But you can't say no to kids with cancer. And so I went along to this camp and I I spoke to these 30 young kids. You know, some of them had – one kid had no leg, no feet, and no hands – He was 19 years old. He hadn't even really lived and he had no feet and no hands. These kids had grown up in hospital They were looking down the barrel of having to live in hospital for the rest of their lives on and off. And so I got to go in there and I got to tell them a story about me with all the laughs and all the tears and all the excitement and make them forget about all the bad things that they were going through and just have a good time. And even though I was terrified, I walked away from that experience with so much joy in my heart that I'd done a good deed for those kids. I realized that that's what I needed to keep doing to keep to make sure that I was happy and feel like my life really had value.
0: So that is what's fueling your fire now then?
2: Yeah, the, there is everything I do, every opportunity that I get, Now in life, and there are many, and and it's a very, very an amazing life I have now. I believe it all comes down to the things that I've done for other people to help them out. You know, whether it's karma, whether it's the uh, universe—I don't know—and I don't do it for that purpose. But everything good that I have in my life now is because of the things I've done for other people, and it's very, very, and some of them really directly have been because of that it's it's really quite remarkable
0: and i think that's very interesting because uh, in this uh, day and age we are very material and uh, we often think a lot about ourselves so uh, for you to say that uh, every every one of my opportunities has come from helping others i think it's important
2: yeah. And look, I, I, I'm material as well. I drive a nice car. I, I live down by the beach when I'm in Sydney or when I'm in, living in LA. But that doesn't stop you have me from earned going that and my time.
0: <laughs> You've earned that one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So that's it's another example of I, I, I didn't want a particularly fancy car, but no, the great things I have in my life now have – come from these mm. um, periods of service to other people. Mm. So uh, I'm very fortunate that I've identified that for a start, that the good things I do provide for me as well, as, as well as providing for other people. So it's, you know, it's it's double-edged sword. Th- mm. They get something out of it, I get something out of it, and everyone happy, and you get to share in those people's joy. So there's two people happy instead of just you.
0: Uh, when you experience something like a shark attack and uh, you lose uh, two of your limbs, how do the people around you behave? Um,
2: my friends and family were all super supportive. You know? um, er- everyone helped as much as they could, uh, even though I don't like a lot of help, uh, <laughs> which was extremely frustrating for a lot of them because I realized that, you know, I was going to eventually have to learn how to do everything by myself, and so I tried to do it straight away um, with a lot of limitations too. But I had – you know, there's no way I could have done it without the amazing support that I had with my, my military friends, my childhood friends that I that – I, you know, everyone flew in from around Australia no matter where they were, and they just gave me so much love and so much support. Um, that sometimes I felt like I wasn't just doing it for me, but I was doing it for them as well. and That that was a lot of motivation. It gave me this quite hard life where I had no money and I was always fighting to survive. Um, I ended up living in a house with no electricity. I had no running water. I had no job. And then you add on to that, the, the strength and the struggle that the Army and the Navy gave me as well. And all of those things combined, I think everything that I had done and everything I'd struggled through in life was almost like training for what was to come after the shark attack oh, because I knew struggle. I knew how to put up with pain. I knew that it could be so much worse. You know, At least I wasn't at this point, You know, I'm missing my hand, I'm missing my leg, I'm in a lot of pain, but I'm not living in a house with no electricity. I've got food <laughs> in the fridge, I've got running water, shower i can take shit in the toilet i can go outside and there's a beach five minutes away so really you have to look at the the great things that you still have and appreciate those even though some of the other things that you used to love might not be there anymore
0: Oh, I think that is so amazing to hear, because I think that is a lot of the solution we we need in this life.
2: Yeah. The only constant thing in this world is change. Hmm. Things are going to change whether we want them to or not, our personalities, our relationships, our jobs. And we get comfortable in those things that we have. But you have to realize that sometimes they're not going to be forever. And if those things have to change, if they have to be removed, then be flexible enough to realize that, they're not gone. It's just changed. You you can fill those gaps with other things that will be just as fulfilling, if not more fulfilling.
0: Uh, what strategies do you use to overcome obstacles? Then
2: sheer will and strength, and I don't know. I I I, I learn a lot from the internet. I I, I try and identify why I'm having obstacles, whether it's physical, mental, professional. And I I firmly believe that with the right tools, you can overcome anything. Um, And sometimes that right tool, as you're saying, is just the right mindset, Um, the mindset to realize that you don't have to quit. You know, there are things that you can do to accomplish anything you want. So we've put... We put spaceships on Mars. People have been to the moon. We've built rocket ships. We, you know, people are out there creating these amazing things and doing that they're no bigger or better than who we are. Hmm. They're just doing things in a different realm. With the right tools, there's nothing we can't accomplish. So, for example, I, I needed to go back to the gym and train. I needed to train three times as hard to be half as good as my mates in the Navy diving branch. But having one hand and one leg obviously can really throw out your bench press and squats. Um, <laughs> you know? Yeah, true. <laughs> but, but I went into that June and I knew I had to train and very – and luckily the Army gave me a very important mantra that – in way back in basic training that I still use to this day and that mantra is improvise, adapt, and overcome okay so i, I couldn't wait bear on the end of my arm i couldn't do push-ups because i had no hand I, and i thought okay well i'm going to improvise and i pulled a bench over and i put my elbow on the bench and i used my left hand and i did push-ups that way and i couldn't hold a dumbbell and i couldn't hold the cables to do certain exercises and i thought well I'll improvise, I'll adapt, I'll, I'll f- I got onto the internet and I found this lifting hook that the bodybuilders use for very heavy deadlifts and pulling exercises and I bought one of those and with that lifting hook, I could slip the material loop over my forearm and then I could put the steel hook into the cables or I could rest a dumbbell in it and do curls. You don't have two legs for squats, does that mean you skip leg day? <laughs> you never skip no. leg that <laughs> One, One-legged pistol squats is always a way. You improvise, you adapt, you overcome. You know, sometimes... You need that mindset, sometimes you need a physical tool. Like now I have my weightlifting prosthetics and there is nothing that I can't do in the gym. I train 3 times harder than everyone around me because I want to inspire them to realize that they can accomplish more than they even believe they can. Wow. That's the that's the beauty military has taught me. You no, know, not not just to push myself beyond all of my limitations, but to inspire other people to do that as well because if they can see me doing it, missing a leg and missing a hand, then they'll believe that there's no reason they can't too.
0: Uh, Have you always been this inspiring, Paul? Because I'm listening to you, I'm becoming uh, inspired. So uh, have you always been this inspiring as
2: a person? (laughs) Uh, No, look, I I really wasn't. Um, It's it's things that I've learned. And that's the funny thing about it. Um, You don't have to be born this way. You don't have to – it doesn't have to be a talent that you just have. These, these are things that we learn, uh, emotional stakes we learn, um, motivational um, – I don't know. Uh, you, you don't just have to think that, okay, I'm this person, I have to accept that, and this is going to be my life. No, that's bullshit. You know, you know how we get good at anything? We do practice. Mm, practice, is our emotions, are, our emotions are no different to a physical action. Mm. If you want to get a good bicep, what do you do? You do curls, okay? Mm. You want to get a positive mental attitude, what do you get? You practice a positive mental attitude. You you surround yourself in positive, uh, motivated people. You surround yourself in all of the things that you love and make you happy, and you have absolutely no reason not to live the life of your dreams,
0: I s- s- do so agree with you, Paul, because uh, that's the reason I started. Uh, some of the reasons I started the podcast was to show that uh, the mental muscle is also a muscle. So if you want to uh, yeah. le- live a better life, you have to train the same way you're training your physical body. Uh, because uh, in s- exactly. for some reason, we uh, don't understand that uh, the mental game is just uh, a muscle that needs training. So thank you for saying that yeah. one. <laughs> Uh, but now you have a completely different life. So how was it to suddenly become famous?
2: Oh, I don't really look at myself as famous. Um, okay, <laughs> uh, I, I I get the opportunity to reach uh, a wide audience now, which is great, and and try and inspire them. Um, so I I really just look at it all as a bit of a blessing. Mm. You know, last week I got paid to go to Hawaii. And go free diving with with sh- with forty sharks, so that I could spread a conservation message. And then from Hawaii, I flew to LA and hosted the Steve Irwin Gala dinner to raise funds for all of the uh, Australia Zoo Conservation Project.
0: Yeah. Wow! Yeah. What's the reason that you're also? Uh... The animals I flew back to Australia and I got off
2: that plane and I went in uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, watching David Attenborough on television. Uh, Steve Irwin, obviously, I just I, I always loved animals. You know, there, there's no lies in an animal. Uh, and Steve Irwin was, you know, he was he hit it the nail right on the head when he said, look, I, I, I love animals because they don't bullshit you. You know, if an animal, if a crocodile wants to eat you, it wants to eat you. And you know that, but people will pretend to be your friends when they're not. Mm. Um, so I don't know. It's just, they're the real, the animals are the true innocence of this world. You know, they're, they're not out for anything. They're not deceptive. They're not malicious. They're just being animals and all they want to do is live. So I think we've done enough damage to this planet. I think we've killed enough animals. I think we really need to start looking at uh, growing as a species, as humans, to try and protect the last vestiges of this wild and beautiful planet we have. So
0: you want to preserve sharks?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. They've been getting destroyed. 100 million a year. That's crazy. Nuts. 100 million? They're, they're a very important. 100 million a year, Ooh. every year. For, for mostly for the um, shark fin soup trade.
0: That's sick.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, right? Uh,
0: yeah, that's
2: A hundred million here. Well, that's, that's wiping the oceans out of a very important piece of the puzzle. You know, not just for the fact that they're incredible animals, and, but they are very important to the ecosystem of the ocean. So you know, a lot of people don't know why, though. Um, And it's pretty simple once you understand. So if if you take a specific area, okay, and there's all of these animals living in this area, and they all feed off each other and stuff like that. So you take out the top apex predator, which is the shark, and the sharks are all gone now. The animals that the sharks ate, so the carnivorous fish, the things like the, the fish that eat the other smaller fish, there's nothing to keep that population in check. So that population absolutely explodes mm. and they just, they just decimate all of the herbivorous fish. Now, all of these herbivorous fish have been eating the algae off the coral reefs. Mm. If they're not there to eat the algae, then the, co- the coral reefs get choked by the algae and they die. All of a sudden there's no coral reefs left, there's no homes for the rest of the organisations, and the whole, the whole ecosystem collapses. And that's just that's just one example of what happens. And it's actually happened in places
0: around the world. Yeah, and now we also have plastic in the water. So we have some challenges.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of
0: challenges. Uh, I really love your mindset, Paul. <laughs> the way I <you> <laughs> become trained or trained yourself or whatever it is i really love it you have in some way changed the perception and uh, your perception is uh enjoy the yep. life and if it's something is giving you fear enjoy it even more
2: exactly and you know what i'm i'm no bigger or badder than anyone else and my story is no no more special than anyone else out there going through hard times we all go through the shit but you have to make that personal choice Mm. You know, what do I want? Do I want a good life or do I want a bad life? And if you want a good life, then it's up to you and you got to stick to that.
0: Yeah, stick to it and work and uh, keep the discipline. I think that is I think that is the most important part is to have the discipline to stick it out. Uh, I think everybody that has yeah. tried to and do if, something, they give up. Even
2: if you fail. Yeah. yeah. If you can stick it out and you can fail and you can slip up and, you know, we all fail. Even the most successful people in the world still fuck up, but it doesn't mean you quit. It just means you learn from that lesson. and You go, oh, all right. So I'm I'm not going to do that stupid thing again. And not, let's try another way. You know,
0: you said something in the beginning. I have to ask you, uh, Paul. You did some wrapping and uh, open for uh, for a snipdog. dog. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what is that? <laughs>
2: Um, Oh, it's just something that happened. You know, I I moved away from home. Um, I I grew up in a a place called Canberra, which is the capital of Australia. It's a very, very boring place. So we we smoked a lot of weed and I I got into a really big fight and I jumped by 20 guys. And so I I decided that I needed to change my circumstances. So I packed everything into a car that I had no license for and I drove 12 hours and started a, a new life in a new city. And some of the people I met there were rappers, you know, they were involved in the music industry, these two American guys. And I started hanging out with them and making rap music and they had some good connections. And all of a sudden, you know, a year and a half down the line, I'm opening the Snoop Dogg concert with
0: my song that I wrote. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I know. It's crazy. Yeah, that's extremely crazy. It shows your mindset again. Yeah, was, you, had, some, every, you had some good mindset there. Every
2: opportunity, yeah. every opportunity you get, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a yes man, but I do believe when opportunity comes knocking, when you get the chance to experience something that you've never done before or really scares you, that you should definitely do it um, because those, those experiences and those choices have oftentimes been my greatest
0: memories. Yeah, and I think that's for all of us. So yeah. so your last fear uh, you overcome then, Paul, that was uh, overcoming the fear of uh, public speaking. How did you overcome that fear?
2: I just kept doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I went from 30 sick kids in a cancer camp to the next job being 1,200 kids at a school. <laughs> um, and I just kept going and going and going because... Like I said, I re- I recognize that sense of joy and sense of um, value and purpose that I got from it. So even though it scared me, I wasn't willing to give up such a special feeling.
0: Wow. And on, and on that uh, end note, Paul, thank you so much for your time. And uh, No problem. And I, and I wish you well. I'm sure I'm going to see you a lot on television from now on maybe
2: <laughs> doing best, some more crazy stuff yeah,
0: best of luck Paul
2: thanks Frank